Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. On this episode of the podcast, we have a special guest, Lance Lambert, CEO, co-founder, and editor at Resi Club, which to me has been a go-to resource for data and information on the housing market, which he started recently after years of covering real estate, most recently as the real estate editor at Fortune Magazine. Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, Lance. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, Really excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Me as well. Uh, It's a very interesting time to talk about uh, real estate. And as I mentioned, I've been following your content for a while, and I think you have a lot of uh, wonderful insight to share with our listeners. But first, maybe tell us a little bit about Resi Club and why you thought it was an important time to start it. Yeah. So I had uh, gotten into real estate data while working at Realtor.com for a couple of years before going to Fortune. And I was a data journalist there. And it was really a period of my career when I was planning to bridge out of journalism. I'd been, you know, a Bloomberg reporter and I was planning to get out. And so this was kind of like my bridge out. And I wanted to become a data scientist. And while I was there, I just kind of learned about myself that I wanted to stay in media. And I spent two years really absorbed into uh, housing data. And then the next thing I knew, once I had started at Fortune, in spring 2020, the lockdowns occurred and then housing started to boom. And so housing kind of pulled me back and I got pulled back into the coverage of housing uh, just because there was really a need for people to understand, get good data and good information on housing. And so I just started writing about it and just kind of took off the past four years. And so Resi Club is just the next step with that. We're trying to get better information for people on the housing market uh, more regional data, and then really good insights into the institutional space and the home building space. Yeah. So looking back at, at 2020, you mentioned real estate had started to boom. What was the reason for that? I mean, was it low rates, people wanting nicer homes during the pandemic, all the stuff that we're, we're, we've heard, or is there something more specific uh, going on there? Yeah. Housing demand, according to the Federal Reserve, increased by 300% during the first two years of the pandemic. And while you didn't get that big of an increase in sales, that elevated amount of demand that was out in the marketplace was not matched by an increase in supply. And so the elevation in demand pushed down on the limited amount of supply that was out there and prices overheated. What caused Uh, a 300% increase in demand. Well, for starters, during the pandemic, uh, during those lockdowns in the subsequent period, there was 2.2 million more household formations than would have otherwise been expected. Well, that was work from home and remote remote work. Uh, A lot of people who were kind of like at home working with roommates were like, you know what, I can't stand you. I'm getting out. And that was occurring across the economy. While at the same time, a lot of households and families were like, you know what, we need an extra bedroom if we're going to be working from home. Uh, And then on top of all of that, what accelerated that demand more is the fact that rates were super low. There was a lot of stimulus in the economy. Stocks were ripping. And so all of that helped to create an acceleration in demand. 
And, uh, you know, if you want to try to put a number to it, you know, the Federal Reserve uh, Bank of San Francisco estimates that around 60 something percent of the increase in prices can be attributed uh, to remote work and the elevation, elevated demand for space. And, and it's really interesting because even the places that lost population during the pandemic, I think a lot of these urban cores, they even went up for prices. And the reason being is even though people were leaving those places, the people who remained wanted more space. And so that's why prices were still able to rise in places uh, where population fell. Yeah, I was going to ask you, was it uniform either across the country or were there winners and losers in types of what you just talked about, city versus suburbs, regions? Uh, what what was the kind of the, the impact to, to different places? Yeah, there was certainly uh, a lot of regional differences. Uh, the places that won the most, of course, being exurbs, like the furthest out. Like think about the places where it was really hard to do a commute in. Uh, mm -hmm. like it was kind of like borderline, like would drive you insane. Those <laughs> were the types of places that started to benefit the most because what they had had is because they were so far out for the commutes, they still had affordability. Prices hadn't been driven up as much. And so the pandemic, while it was in a chase for uh, space, it was also a chase for affordability, right? A lot of these people who were locked into uh, places like New York City, LA, Seattle, San Francisco, DC, Boston, they saw this as their opportunity to, you know, leave and go get something more affordable with more space and a different type of lifestyle, some of them. Uh, since I would say the Fed started uh, hiking rates, we've seen a bit less of that. Like a less of the appreciation is now in Boise and Austin. Those places have actually seen some corrections. And now some of the biggest winners uh, in terms of home price growth, so I don't necessarily know if that's a winner, depending on your personal view, are places like the donut effect. Uh, like a lot of parts of Connecticut, further out into New Jersey, the places around New York City to where, yeah, you're not going to sustainably do uh, a five-day commute into the office, but you no longer have to do a five-day commute because the uh, your workplace is no longer five days a week. Maybe they're hybrid and you need to check in one or two. And so it becomes doable. So we are still seeing the exurbs uh, hold fairly strong in a lot of these major markets. And so you started elaborating on that a little bit, uh, but just maybe continuing down that path. What's the real estate market like now that we're, you know, three and a half years out from that 2020 and rates have changed quite a bit? Yeah, on the national level, uh, overheating for prices has stopped. Uh, you know, during the first two years of the pandemic uh, for the Zillow Home Value Index between March 2020 and July 2022, uh, U.S. home prices went up 41 percent. We're still up about that amount. So we've kind of we gave up some in prices and then we gained them back really fast early this year on a national level. And now we're having a little bit of give up, nothing like the end of last year in, in this seasonally weaker second half of the year. But on a national level, uh, house prices have kind of, uh, they've definitely stopped overheating, but haven't had a big correction uh, on the national level. Uh, 
inventory is still fairly tight. Uh, we're still about down 35% at least since uh, pre-pandemic levels, uh, you know, November 2023 versus November 2019. Um, and resale supply, what's actually coming on the market is constrained at the moment. We're down about 20% from pre-pandemic levels for that too. And what that is, is a lot of people who would maybe normally, you know, sell their house and go buy something new. They have a lifestyle change. They want a different house. They have another kid. You're seeing those people second guess that decision. And so there's less of it occurring. And the reason being is that affordability is so strained for those people to go buy a new house because rates are so high. They'd be giving up their two, three, four percent mortgage rate and getting a six or seven, or even at times this fall, an eight percent mortgage rate. And so we're just seeing less churn in the market. So less resale supply. So resale supply is tight. Affordability, like I said, is very strained. Affordability is just very strained. So the tailwind for the market, what's pushing it forward is tight supply, tight resale supply. And the thing that's the headwind to the market that's constraining the market here is the uh, deteriorated affordability. So I think of it as like a tug of war. And so on a national level, that tug of war is kind of at a bit of a stalemate. I'd say the tight resale supply maybe has a little bit of an edge. And that's why we're going to finish up year over year for house prices. But as you go across the country, there's some markets where like in Hartford, Connecticut, the tight resale supply, supply is down 80% from pre-pandemic levels. So that means for every one home for sale today in Hartford, Connecticut's metro area, there was four for sale in 2019. So inventory is just super tight there. And so house prices are still rising at an elevated rate. Hartford's up like eight, nine, 10% for the year. Then you go across the country and there's places like Austin, Texas, where prices are down 10%. And the reason being is supply is loosened up there. There's a good amount of new construction coming on the market. But then also the affordability hit was more acute because so much of that California money came in during the pandemic and it drove Austin house prices just so far beyond fund local fundamentals that when mortgage rates jumped up, they just went over the top. They were over their skis in terms of prices. And so uh, that created more of a demand shock in the market uh, and the pandemic migration slowed down. And then they have a lot of new construction in the market. And then what was coming up for sale in the existing market just wasn't selling fast. So inventory built. So there's still a lot of bifurcation across the country, but it really all comes down to those two core fundamentals of where is supply in your market, resale supply, and then where where is the affordability? Um, and those are the two biggest factors right now in, in this tug of war. Yeah, thank you. And so we've had this debate internally at Heritage in terms of thinking that limited supply, possibly because of high mortgage rates and people not wanting to, to get out of a super attractive mortgage uh, they were in uh, compared to now, has hurt inventory. And we're kind of wondering if rates come down to a more reasonable level, I mean, people can't anchor to two to 3% forever, but if rates come down and inventory picks up, do you expect that to soften real estate pricing uh, or oh. do, sorry, go, yeah. 
Yeah, uh, so this is a great question. And one thing I will say is when I talk about inventory, I talk about active listings. And so yeah. active listings are really the middle point between supply and demand. And it really measures both. And let me give you an example of that. So during the over the past year, Austin's seen prices fall. But Austin on the resale supply, what's coming in, the new listings, they're actually down. They've been down in Austin. They're down like 20 something percent from pre-pandemic levels. So inventory in Austin didn't build because a lot of supply in the existing market came on. The reason that inventory built in Austin is because demand fell so hard, the days on market rose and the markets, the homes on the market sat longer and inventory built. So that's how inventory built in Austin. So it is possible for inventory to build even as new listings fall. So the reason I bring that up is your question is, if mortgage rates fall, then new listings would presumably rise. There's going to be more people listing their home for sale, and then they're going to go out and buy something new because they can finally like justify that new monthly payment. But as just as in Austin, as new list new listings fell and then inventory still rose, it's possible that new listings could rise and inventory could fall. The reason being is if that decrease in rates, yes, it brings out more supply in the resale market, but if it also brings out buyers at a faster pace, if buyers come in quicker, then it's possible that days on market could fall as rates fall and even as more supply comes on the market, that active listings could fall as the market heats up. Now, I think what could be possible is that just as Austin and Hartford saw very different stories as mortgage rates moved up and active listings and inventory in the markets moved in different directions, I think it's going to be possible that if rates were to fall, and depending on how much they fall, that the results on a local market basis could be very different. And there could be places where supply and inventory builds with the phenomenon you said, more comes on and it kind of overwhelms the market and you know there's some softening. But then there could also be the places where it's the opposite and it creates more of an acceleration and more heating in the market. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, and I'm not necessarily firmly in either camp because I also believe a lot of it's going to come down to, well, one, how much do rates actually move down? Because I think there will continue to be a lock-in effect on the market if we don't move down more than where we are today. And then two, how does the overall economy hold up? Where is the labor market, which has obviously been a very big support for the housing market as we've went through this mortgage rate shock? So we've been talking about the real estate market and um, talking about some regional differences. Are there price point differences in all of this? I know the prices uh, you know, vary widely across the country, but maybe thinking starter home versus you know, much, much nicer home um, in different areas, are they all being impacted the same way? That that's a great question. And so what we've seen uh, through a lot of the country is we and this does vary and there are very notable exceptions And some real estate agents in certain markets love, love to emphasize that point. Uh, but generally speaking, 
the entry level side of the housing market has been hotter and more heated with competition over the past, let's say, 15, 18 months since mortgage rates went up than the very top of the market, which has been a little colder. It makes very it makes a lot of economic sense when you spend time to think about it, because what occurred during the mortgage rate shock is that affordability got very strained. And a lot of people even lost mortgage eligibility up to certain amounts. And it kind of came down to what, if you could afford X amount before mortgage rates went up, let's say it's 600,000, well, a lot of folks now can only afford 400,000. So a lot of the demand wasn't fully pushed out of the housing market and said it was just pushed down the housing market, down the competition ladder. And so we saw more of the competition going to the bottom of the market. And at the same time, we saw in the market a lot of the move up seller slash buyer. Let's say somebody had bought four years ago an entry level house for their family. And now uh, that two bedroom house, now they have, let's say, two kids. Right. In a lot of situations, normally maybe they would sell now and go buy a three bedroom house. But because mortgage rates are so high and they can't afford the monthly payment on that bigger house, they're just going to bunk bed it and they're going to have bunk beds. And so that house, which would normally become supply at the bottom of the market, isn't coming on. So what we're seeing is that demand has been pushed down the ladder and then the supply, this lock-in effect has been most acute at the bottom. And then that person who would list their two-bedroom house and go buy a, th a three-bedroom, they're taking demand off the top of, top of the market. So what, what that's created is that you look at the Zillow Home Value Index data is we've seen a lot more appreciation at the bottom of the market, especially in the Midwest and Northeast. And then in the middle of the market, it's kind of the numbers that I report all the time, which is kind of like up maybe 1% from the peak or right at the peak, depending on the indice. And then at the top of the market, they're down a few percentage points from the peak still. And if you go to places like San Francisco or Seattle, they're down like 15, 18% from the peak at the very top third of the market. Now, my data actually cuts off the very bottom fifth percentile and the very top fifth percentile. But I think if you had the numbers for the very tippity top, that top 5%, they're down even more. Um, the like the, the, the like core luxury, uh, the top luxury in the market is down even more, which is normal. Um, and th that occurs. Great. Uh, let's pivot to rates. Um, obviously, that's a big impact and we've referenced them quite a bit already. Uh, maybe as a uh, kind of a 101 topic, what determines mortgage rates? How, how are how are you getting to a mortgage rate? How do you back into what they should be? Yeah, so the mortgage rates uh, and long-term rates in the economy, of course, are not set by the Federal Reserve. Uh, they're set by financial markets. And uh, now, the Fed now the financial markets take into uh, account the expectations for the short-term rates that the Federal Reserve does set. And so financial markets are taking into account the economy. They're taking into account the future expectations of short-term rates. And they're buying securities. They're trying to find yields um, and good returns. And so as some of these, uh, as bond prices 
uh, fall yields increase. So mortgage rates and yields on like the 10-year treasury increase if mortgage-backed securities and other bond prices uh, fall. But as they rally, like we've seen lately, where bond prices increase um, and these security prices increase, then the yields actually fall. Uh, so it's the opposite. But the, the mortgage rates um, have increased very quickly uh, going back to uh, the beginning of 2022, even before the Fed started hiking rates. So by January, February, uh, March 2022, they were already moving up even before the Fed had that first decision. And all of last year, they're moving up. And they were moving up actually at a faster pace than the 10-year Treasury yield. And we started to get this wider gap. Some of the reasoning being that the Fed had been buying a lot of MBS securities. So when the Fed pulled out, that buyer of MBS securities didn't, uh, nobody replaced them in the way the Fed was buying. And so if there's fewer than less demand for mortgage-backed securities, then the, uh, the yields, which in this case are mortgage rates, increase. And so we saw that occur. One other theory is that uh, there is a, um, a prepayment risk which is the people buying the security realize that mortgage rates will probably be lower long-term. And so the people taking out mortgage rates in 2020 and 2023 are likely to refinance. And so that refinance risk adds a premium to the mortgage rate. So that helps to get the spread even more. But the reason the spread matters is today, the 10-year treasury yield is trading around 4%, a little under 4%, I believe. And so if uh, mortgage rates were at the normal spread, then the which the normal spread is around let's say 175 basis points, 1.75%. Then the average 30-year fixed mortgage rate today would be 5.75, rather than what it is, which is like 6.64. Um, and so now what we're starting to see now is that the market is pricing in the Fed starting to cut rates. So we have seen uh, a bond rally and we've seen yields come down. The 10-year treasury yield, which is now four, was 5% in October. And the average 30-year fixed mortgage rate, which today uh, had a, coming out of Friday was 6.64. And back in October, uh, the average 30-year fixed mortgage rate hit a 24 three-year uh, high of 8.03. So we have seen uh, the financial markets start to price in the Fed cutting rates next year, starting to price in uh, other factors, including the economy staying firm. But we have seen uh, yields and mortgage rates come down a bit, although it's not falling super fast. And the reason being is, like I said, the financial markets are still pricing in a stronger economy uh, if they were pricing in a weaker economy or pricing in a recession, we would actually see the yields and mortgage rates fall even faster. So long-winded yeah. response on that one, but that's it gets into a lot of the deeper details. Yeah, that's great. Any thoughts on why the spread continues to be elevated? Um, I, I think it goes back to the two bigger points, which is the Fed's still not buying MBS. They're allowing some of it to roll off their portfolio. And there is that prepayment risk where okay. most uh, 
you know, economists and a lot of uh, analysts still believe that mortgage rates will uh, soften over time and the 10-year treasury yield could come in a bit more. And so that pre prepayment risk is still there. Where, I mean, you, you look at the people who just got the 8% mortgages in October, uh, presumably all of them are going to refinance if right. rates here. So yeah. pre prepayment risk still, uh, the market still thinks it's it's in play. So where should mortgage rates normalize at? Or can you even think of a normalized mortgage rate? Because, you know, if people are making financial decisions, if they are reluctant to make real estate moves because of the 2 3%, 4% mortgages they saw, um, that's not realistic. I don't think that's coming back. But also maybe eight to and seven to eight is is a little elevated. So is it somewhere in between in terms of people kind of making long term assumptions about when they should act in, in a healthy mortgage market? Yeah. So uh, going back to uh, summer of 2022, uh, Chief uh, Moody's Analytics Chief Economist Mark Zandi told me at the time that he thought that the average 30 year fixed mortgage rate would be 6.5 this year. We're six, we're going to be around 6.9%, so not too far off. But then he thought at the time that after 2023, after that 6.5, that then the following year would be 6% average for the 30-year fixed mortgage rate. And, uh, and that some of the spread would come down as the Fed started to cut rates. And then he believed in 2025, we would kind of hit into the long-term uh, place he thinks mortgage rates is going to hold, which is 5.5%. So who who knows in terms of where, you know, mortgage rates are actually going to drift. This year, this fall, of course, we got higher than expected. But in terms of a long-term, it does feel like a lot of the experts don't think that we're going back to a two or three, maybe even low fours for a you know, and if we got back to like, let's say a low 4% mortgage rate, things could have went terribly wrong in the economy. Um, and so rooting for really low mortgage rates might not be the smartest thing to do. <laughs> uh, but I, I do hear a lot when I talk to experts uh, who are in the financial market space that they're kind of thinking five to six um, with Mark Sandy thinking five and a half for the long term fluff where we kind of hover long term. That makes a lot of sense. And you you mentioned earlier, you think they do need to come down a little bit more for, was it housing affordability or for just, you know, for, for more activity to, to hit the market? I think if you want to get housing, well, so this October, when mortgage rates hit 8.03 for the average 30-year fixed mortgage rate, that, that was the worst affordability levels in four, 40 years, going back to when mortgage rates were like double digits in the 80s. So actually, a 11% mortgage rate in the 80s was not as bad as an 8% mortgage rate today because prices were so are so high now relative to incomes. So affordability just got very deteriorated recently. And to get us back to a historic norm, it would take a, a long period of incomes outpacing uh, house price growth. But then most importantly, if we could just get mortgage rates down from eight to seven to six to maybe five and a half percent, that would do a lot to push us back to an affordability level that is more reasonably historically speaking. And then that market would probably be a place where some of the people with like three percent mortgage rates are like, you know what, 
I'll, I'll list my home and go buy something new. Uh, I know this 3% mortgage rate isn't going to last forever, but my kids can only stay in bunk beds for so long. So you, you potentially could see some of that as rates come in. And so affordability improving through rates coming down makes it into a bit of a, a healthier market in terms of transactions. What, what have builders been doing these last few years? Uh, have they taken advantage of these elevated prices or are we not building as much as we typically do and that's contributing to the elevation? Yeah, so builders have uh, done well. Uh, uh, there's very tight resale supply. And during the pandemic, there was such an overheating on demand that the absorption level, so inventory in the market, what was active got absorbed, right? So it got very, very tight. And we got under like 60% below or 55% below pre-pandemic levels for active listings and inventory. And so builders were in a sweet spot during the pandemic where they had more demand than they had supply and they were selling really far out. And so their home sales were very high. Um, of course, completions got slowed down because of the pandemic uh, supply chain issues that were kind of gumming it up, you know, having to wait for windows this long or garage doors uh, three months longer kind of slowed them down. But what they occurred because they had so much pricing power is they achieved margins that were the highest they'd ever achieved. Builders were more profitable during the pandemic housing boom than they were during the 2000s boom. Uh, they just had complete control. And fast forward to mortgage rates moving up last year, mortgage rates going from three to four to five to six to seven percent. Everybody was worried about the builders. But what the builders did is they had really high margins. And yeah, they did start to see cancellation move rates move up fairly quickly for a bit. But they took their high margins and they used them to make affordability adjustments. So in some markets, that meant outright price cuts. In other markets, it meant mortgage rates, mortgage rate buy downs. So instead of going out and a buyer getting a 7% mortgage rate, they could go to a builder and get a five and a half, a 5%, in some places, 4.8% mortgage rate. And so the affordability adjustments, including like money at close and stuff like that, and uh, bringing back agent commissions, which then attracted the agents to work for them. Uh, helped them to be in a place where they were able to continue to sell homes despite mortgage rates being high. And a part of that, of course, is the fact that resale supply remained low and there was no huge crash in terms of inventory in the existing market, like soaring up as mortgage rates got went higher. And yeah, inventory did briefly rise a bit in some of these markets as active listings rose because days on markets rose. But they, builders never got a lot of competition from the existing market. The builders just were in a good position where they were able to come down a bit on uh, net price and they were still able to maintain sales and still able to keep margins at levels that were above pre-pandemic levels. So among the 10 big builders that I track closely, nine still have profit margins that are above pre-pandemic levels, if that tells you how uh, good of a position they are in, despite mortgage rates going above 7%. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you for that overview. As we wind down here, is there anything else that you're getting asked about real estate or that you find uh, interesting that you wanted to share with our listeners? 
I, I think one thing that's key to remember is that housing is very seasonal and that on a national level, uh, most of the house price growth occurs in the first half of the year. And then in the second half of the year, it's softer and a little weaker. And this year, during that softer, weaker period of the year, we got hit by 8% mortgage rates. So the market started to have uh, a bit of a negative reaction and more acutely in certain markets, especially like Texas and some parts of Louisiana. But as we move into next year, uh, we're going to move into the stronger seasonal period of the year. And some of these markets like Hartford, Connecticut, uh, they still have very low resale supply. And so they're going to be in a position where they're probably going to get some uh you know, uh, they're going to get some appreciation and it's going to be competitive in some of these markets. And so I think the thing that I'm going to leave people with is that housing can vary a lot by market. But if you have good inventory data and you know where active listings are moving in your market, you can read ahead of time to see where short term prices are going to go. So where can you get really good active listing data? Well, Resi Club, housing trackers, uh, where you can come in and see the 3,000 counties across the U.S., 800 metro micro areas, and you can go and see how much is inventory up over the past month or down, uh, what's the change over the past year. And then the core metric, the most important metric, is how is inventory in your market right now compared to pre-pandemic levels? So December uh, 2023 versus December 2019. And the further away you are from 2023 in terms of you're down more, the more likely pricing heading into 2024 is going to be accelerated. And the more you're above pre-pandemic inventory levels, the more likely your market could be one that sees a correction next year. Great. Thank you very much, Lance. And I did want you to share with everybody before we wrapped up exactly where they can find you and your work, uh, all the different uh, places they can interact with you. Yeah. If they want to follow my stuff on Twitter at News Lambert, I'm there all the time posting. If, if you have questions, you can hit me there. Sure. Uh, if they want to see uh, Resi Club's work uh, or subscribe to our free daily newsletter, they could go to Resi Club Analytics. Uh, dot com. And there you just type in your email and you get the free daily newsletter. Of course, we also have a premium product that has the uh, housing tracker data that I'd mentioned, and that's uh, $150 a year. Great. Thank you very much for your time today. It was, a, it was a very interesting conversation about a very timely topic, and I appreciate your generosity with our listeners. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior@heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakamis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the speaker, are subject to change, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal. 
there has not been and will not be any compensation exchanged between Heritage Financial Services and podcast guests or recommended resources.